0: Hello, welcome to PSR People Speaking Rail. And today uh, the People Speaking Rail will be myself, Mike still head of intermodal solutions here at Freightwaves, And I'll be joined by Martin Liu, who's the CEO of Comtrex. Uh Comtrex is a company that um, has a great deal of data uh, in the railroad industry for things like rail car storage prices, rail car lease rates, um, you know, a lot on transloading. You can tell us all about how, how you can connect uh, to the right uh, companies that can transload a shipment. So, we'll learn from uh, Martin um, in a few minutes. Uh, but first, I'm just going to go through, uh, the, uh, take, just take you take around the freightwaves.com website, uh, talk a little bit about the news that's relevant to those um, that are um, interested in the railroad industry. I'm going to with, start with topic number one here, which is tentative agreement reached at the West Coast ports. Uh, we do have quite a bit of uh, coverage. Up on FreightWaves.com, uh, both from the Greg Miller article that we can uh, bring up with the with the photo of uh, ports of uh, Los Angeles, and uh, also there was a, a segment on FreightWaves now where we had um, you know Greg and uh, Sal um, uh you know discuss uh, what was happening at the at, at the, the port of um, parts of LA Long Beach. There you see Greg's article with the with the photo of the port of of, of LA, and uh, it's kind of what a difference a, a, a week makes. Sort of at this time last week, we were concerned about the labor situation. Maybe it it got incrementally worse because there were reports that the the workers were um, effectively shutting down or severely impacting terminal operations uh, from June 2nd to about uh, June 5th. But it does look like a tentative new six-year contract is in place. It is subject to ratification by both the dock workers, that's the ILWU, and uh, the PMA, the Pacific uh, Maritime Association, there had been a sticking point over, um, you know, wages, uh, which uh, seems to have, um, have been resolved. Those details were not made, uh, you know, public, um, uh, but it does seem like uh, this should at least, um, you know, quell concerns for you know, about six years, which is the length of the of, of the contract. Um, so I think that's a positive uh, thing for the railroad industry. I um, have a Sonar chart that shows uh, the port of um, a port of Los Angeles uh, how the, the maritime import shipments have been volatile over the last few years and uh, you know Greg goes into this in his article that the volumes have increased uh, you know seasonally. there, there, there you see uh, the maritime import TUs port of LA, you know how that really was at a, an extremely elevated level throughout 2021 2022 it was during the first half of the year um, you know, to fall off in the second half of the year and has remained um, with a great deal of capacity Jean uh, uh, Soroka Who's the head of the Port of LA? Says they have about they're at about seventy percent capacity. Uh, you know, at the Port of LA, you do see that seasonal increase from uh, sort of that that um, sort of nadir in February through through March and April and into, into May and June. How that's how that's increased, but but still, um, you know, lots of capacity uh, there. So so overall, good news at the the, the West Coast uh, ports. Uh, sort of the next uh, news story here is a tiger. Cool Express is uh, closing. We have a picture of Tiger's um, uh, refrigerated intermodal containers uh, that you that you can uh, you know put up. So this is if you're not familiar with Tiger Cool Express, they're a company that does 53 foot or did 53 foot refrigerated containers. There you see the picture of uh, the containers on flat car, and I like that picture because you can see on the right of those containers, that's the cooling unit. So those would be you know temperature controlled containers, which we sort of thought of as being kind of the the Holy Grail um, in uh, intermodal. If you could figure out how to move lettuce and other produce, um, you know, via uh, intermodal uh, cooled units, you know, a lot of that's consumed in Chicago or New York, but um, you know, certainly grown in California. So that was kind of, uh, you know, an ambitious, uh, you know, ambitious thing. This was something that was reported in uh, Kansas City Business Journal, journal I believe. Uh, Clarissa Hawes, uh, the Freight Waves writer, is going to have a story up on that. She does tend to cover. Uh, bankruptcies, um, you know, when they come, uh, when, when they arise. And um, I guess it closed on on Tuesday. The PE f- firm uh, pulled the funding. They had about 50 to 60 employees. So I hope uh, those um, individuals uh, land on their, their, their feet. I'm um, going to go through one other uh, news story here, which is um, one that was written by Joanna Marsh. Um, Joanna has an article up on. The rail unions urge uh, Biden to keep current um, STP chairman at helm. So this STP chairman Marty Oberman, for those who have um, you know heard him speak, he's been very you know tough on the rails. I would say tough, but but fair. Um, you know very concerned about the competitive dynamic in the railroad industry. Very concerned about rail service uh, levels. And uh, there had been a sort of surprising story that Joanna had written up um, you know a week or two ago, where uh, there were three liberal groups: this revolving door project, Roots Action and Freedom Block, who said that uh, the chairman um, you know, mishandled the merger between you know, Canadian Pacific and Kansas City Southern, and they wanted the, the, the chairman replaced by Robert Primus, the only member of the Service Transportation Board that voted against the merger. And um, you know what uh, Joanna wrote up in her article was that there was a pretty um, strong uh, re- rebuke of that, uh, where Greg Regan, president of, of the Transportation and Trades Department uh, of the ACL, AFL-CIO um, coalition, along with thirteen different uh, individual rail unions, sent letters to Biden in support of Marty Oberman, the current uh, chairman. And um, you know, I do have a great uh, quote that I'd like to bring up from you know Joanna's article. It was from the coalition of, of thirteen rail uh, you know unions, and um, says the real problem uh, with service and safety in the rail industry is not the concentration in the industry the hijacking of the industry by hedge funds and so-called activist investors. Um, and it does seem like uh, railroads focusing on you know service uh, that's kind of the reward that they get sort of', sort of focusing on service um, in, in, you know over you know a low operating ratio kind of the reward for that is uh, you know, activist um, investors kick out the, the, the management team so that's sort of the, the issue um, in the industry that those um, unions, uh, call out um it's hard to, to disagree with that um, one last news story um is is J- the JB Hunt there's a JB Hunt update uh, Todd Maiden uh, who usually follows uh, what's happening on Wall Street um you know did that at the Wells Fargo conference uh gave a couple of quotes from from JB Hunt also have a, a chart that shows domestic uh, containerized volume which is really the you know primary segment that JB Hunt uh, participates in that JB uh, I uh, segments, although they do you know, many other things, dedicated, you know, truckload, uh, brokerage, all those things. But it shows uh, domestic intermodal containerized loaded volume. Those white lines are averages of the quarter, sort of the first quarter date, sort of second quarter date, those two white lines. So it's increased just a little bit in the second quarter from the first, um, it actually increased a little bit more when you look at the green lines, which is 2022. Uh, but uh, so we're showing that domestic intermodal volume for the industry overall uh, up about, or, or actually down about six point five percent year over year in the second quarter to date, which is better than the overall intermodal volume was down about eleven percent um, year to date. Um, there were some quotes in uh, Todd's article from Shelley Simpson, a president, who said that we have a they have a few pockets where it's getting a little bit better. She's talking about demand, um, but uh, sort of no, uh, you know, wide scale sort of end to the to the down cycle. Uh, as, as she was describing it, so said that pricing pressure is still on for all modes except dedicated, which uh, that seems to be a nice pocket of stability for a you know, company like that. Uh, they say the prices um, will be different um, in the third quarter um, than they had been in the first half of, of the year. I guess their contracts started repricing in the third quarter of last year, so uh, maybe not a surprise there. There's pricing pressure in intermodal. Um, That's going to happen when intermodal volumes are, are as weak as they have been. So that's your news. Um, we'd like to bring on uh, today's guest, Martin Liu, CEO of Comtrex. Um, we have Martin. There he is. Thank you, hey, Thank you for having me. Appreciate you having me on Yeah, no problem. Yeah, good to, good to, good to see you again. Um, I think the way we should start is just for those not familiar with Comtrex, why don't you give us a rundown of the services uh, Comtrex offers? Yeah,
1: absolutely, absolutely. So Comtrex is a, a platform that connects shippers with uh, various um, rail services and rail providers that will help them effectively facilitate their, their movement shipments. So we have four marketplaces. We have a marketplace for leasing rail cars, a marketplace for rail car storage, uh, a marketplace for buying and selling rail cars. And then um, the marketplace that we built last was a transit marketplace, which helps connect shippers with over 1,700 transit facilities across U.S., Canada, and, and Mexico. Uh, we also have a rail services director which also provides shippers with insight on so where they can find rail car maintenance shops, um, industrial development uh, providers um, and other providers that could help them with uh, setting up their facility or setting up their program. Uh, in addition to that, we also have a physical logistics program that we've recently launched uh, that could also help shippers with managing, uh, strategizing, and then also providing exception management uh, for the disruptions that happen along the way.
0: Yeah, so you know great deal of things that, that help you know shippers with their... I guess there's one commonality there. It helps shippers with their railroad needs and connecting them to the right... Um, you know service providers um, across a wide range of, of, of services. So you're, you're almost like a, a broker of railroad services. It were more of a I was because there's
1: more of a, a visibility digital platform um, it, with respect to how we connect shippers with the different sources across the, uh, the, the North America. I was a former shipper myself. I was on the trading desk uh, at JP Morgan. Uh, we're moving coal. so we were coal environmental markets were the products that we were trading. Um, and, you know, when you're moving a high volume of product, um, you know, it's, 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 and, and you're on a trading desk where arbitrage opportunities are very timely, uh, being able to identify the right sources, get the rates and uh, uh, understand where capacity availability is, is, is paramount to being able to execute and put on trades. Um, and for us at the time, um, it was very difficult, you know, back in 2015, 16, when we started contracts and right prior to that, when I was at the, on the trading desk, to be able to, to uh, assess whether... Uh, a a trade from origin destination would work. And obviously delivered cost is the most important component to to any position that we're putting on. So when thinking about rail cars and rail car assets, uh, the first thing that came to mind was how can we create a spot market for rail car capacity? Uh, There are people who would be long cars and short cars. And if there's some way for a platform to create some equilibrium uh, between the supply and demand side of the market, uh, that should be something that would be very valuable for shippers. So that's where we started actually. We started in the leasing market and then we moved into the storage market because we knew that in a bear market, storage would be on fire. uh, And that was proven and and very demonstrative during COVID because, uh, you know, at that time, there was a peak amount of about 525,000 cars that were in storage. So 525,000 of the 1.6 million rail cars across North America were sitting in storage, you know, relative to now where you're sitting at about 295,000 cars in storage. So, you know, in a bear market, storage is is, is available. But, you know, either way, if you're a shipping rail, whether you're you know, uh, managing your own cars or using system cars, you know, you, you still have to figure out how to identify storage locations, uh, identify capacity available for rail cars. And then most recently, we launched a transit uh, um, platform uh, because that was something that we saw in data analytics, that shippers were constantly looking for ways to be able to identify terminals, ports, uh, transit sites across U.S., Canada, Mexico, so that they can convert some of these uh, truck lanes to rail lanes. Uh, and even to this day, that's probably one of the largest blind spots in the supply chain.
0: Yeah, so you're really addressing a lot of different problems here. I, I mean, I guess one, I mean one thing that's that's interesting is um, with the rail car leasing market from an outsider's perspective, I and mean, there's really not a lot of um, visibility into lease rates. I mean, you can sort of I mean, when I was covering you know G, um, um, GATX and Trinity, it was it was hard to sort of ascertain sometimes you know uh, you know outside um, sort of data on on, on lease rates. Um, so maybe you know what are you seeing in the in the leasing market from 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 rates
1: um you know currently so you know i'll I'll start higher level before we get to the rates just on on a more macro level you know we've been in a fairly tight environment for rail COVID for 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 quite a while um the the issue that a a lot of shippers are are facing right now is exactly how do they manage their um the capacity moving forward in in a very unpredictable and uncertain economic environment uh when thinking about uh, you know rail car fleet management and when thinking about how you balance your fleet um, there's a lot of um, sort of predictive analytics that go into how you determine what your capacity needs are going to be. Um, and that ties directly into uh, what the supply demand is currently. Uh, and then also looking at every segments, right? So, so, so whether you're looking at dribble cars, or you're looking at liquid bull cars, um, you know, every segment, even within those categories are going to be different. So, you know, when you talk about lease rates, it's really, uh, you know, on, on the carload side of the business, it's very sort of commodity, uh, commodity uh, contingent or commodity dependent. So depending upon whether you're looking at, you know, large covered hoppers, which is the largest fleet uh, in North America, where they're looking at tank cars. And even within those specific statements, you know, really the, the few dynamics or dimensions that go into a, a decision that a shippers making is, you know, what is the uh, the equipment, the unloading uh, or discharge uh, a type of equipment needed to be able to unload that particular commodity or product? And then number two, what's the cubic capacity uh, for that product? So when looking at lease rates and we had a lease index and we keep internal lease index here internally, but we had a published lease index about three or four years ago. And the, the value to that index was really, you know, um, giving more of a 30 to 40,000 full level of view of what prices are. But because cars are very specific to, you know, the two you know, primary subtypes I mentioned were subcategories, which is the discharge type and then the cubic the weight capacity, um, you know, and then within that respective commodity, you know, it is pretty fragmented in pricing. And so right now, you know, we've seen pricing, um, you know, on on the higher end than what we've seen, you know, historically because of the tightness in the market. And right now, you know, shippers are reluctant to get into long term agreements because, you know, we're coming out of a pandemic, which is a black swan event. And who knows what the, you know, with the geopolitical risk that is out there, you know, what is that next black swan or outlier event that's going to happen that may disrupt uh, the ability for shippers to be able to move products? So, you know, what we're seeing right now is a lot of shippers have been looking for cars. Um, you know, right now, lessors on the supply side of that, uh, they're reluctant to get into short-term deals. Of course, if you're a lessor and you're thinking the supply side, you want to be able to price cars out uh, as far as possible so that you can lock in term rates, um, and not be so, uh, sort of dependent upon what the spot market's doing. So that's what we tried to create when we were building comp We were really trying to develop a spot market, but you know, what a pediment was to create a spot market was the fact that you need some fungibility and some liquidity in a spot market, whether it be equipment or whether it be underlying commodities, um, and, and it's just, you know, equipment, car, rail car equipment is not that fungible to where you can have a liquid spot market.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's so specific to the type of chemicals that's being moved. If it's, if it's a tank car, if it's a coil, it's insulation, has the right jackets, you know, sorry, safety requirements, all, all, all of those things. But, you know, I, 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 you know, it seems like going through you it sort of puts you on an even playing field with a big leasing company. A big leasing company is going to see sort of every single day, you know, are these leases being renewed? Whereas a shipper just wouldn't have that sort of vi- visibility unless you're going through, you know, someone like you who's knowledgeable in the in, in the space. Um, you know, one thing that that was interesting, you know, when you know we used to have your some of your data in um, in Sonar, and we had uh, rail car storage rates at different regions in the country, and it was always interesting to me how at it, some sometimes there were higher storage rates in some regions than than in others. Are, are you seeing any? disparities now um, or is it just there's there's enough demand at least on the carload side that storage rates aren't all that high
1: yeah, so when you think about storage you know think about storage as a, a, a really a, a region or a, a geographic driven market so there's a, a few components when you're thinking about storage number one, Uh, are you talking about hazmat cars or non-hazmat cars because that you know if you're talking hazmat cars that really relegates you to a much more sort of um a constrained amount of of, of capacity you can choose from if you're talking non-haz you know much much broader uh, amount of um, capacity you can you can work from and then whether the cars are loaded or unloaded those are you know your your two primary categories of of, of dynamics when you think about pricing but at the end of the day everything is geographically driven right so the, the, the highest priced market, uh, you know, even historically since we started the marketplace, has always been the Houston market uh, and the Chicago market. Uh, why is it the highest price? Because you're constrained by geography. Uh, there's just not that much rail, uh, available rail track capacity. So just basic lo- laws of, of fundamentals of supply and demand. You don't have the available track capacity. Everybody wants to be as close to the ports or terminals or wherever the, they're um, unloading their product or whether they're discharging their product at. And everybody wants to be in the Houston market. So when you're thinking rates, uh, people come into our platform and they think that, you know, with the rates they'll see in the Midwest or, uh, you know, in, in other the interior of the country, you know, you're, you're 2 to $4 per car per day and you're 100 to $200 in and out fees. You know, the, they're, they're surprised when they come to the Houston market. And you're talking, you know, very often low to mid teens. And, you know, in a hot market, you're talking in the 20s uh, as far as per mm-hmm. car per day prices, 250 to $300 on the in and out prices. So, you know, when it, it's a very stratified market, but, you know it, it doesn't fluctuate that much and when you're talking about constrained markets you know to for capacity markets like houston uh chicago los angeles so we always advise our, our shippers that when thinking about capacity you know you try to find capacity that is as close to where you want to be but you need flexibility so along your origin destination points you want to be able to have as many contracts as possible and that's what the platform really provides for our shippers is you, know, you come to one place you can get one contract and be able to determine you know, based upon your origin destination points, but based upon the freight rates that you have, you know, along those points, what are the short lines or storage providers that can provide you with the best rates? But at the end of the day, everything is really confined to the the, the OD pair or the rates that you have with the Class railroad.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot to um, a lot goes into those rates. Um, that's a, that's a great description. Uh, I also want to ask you. I mean, you do so much on, on, on tr- with transloading, and uh, sort of what are the different types of transloading that you help? facilitate um and how can a shipper use your platform for for translating yeah absolutely so um i'll,
1: I'll back up one second so when we were building the translocal marketplace uh there there are two things that we really kept in mind number one was how do we make it easier for shippers to find transload facilities and location uh it, when you think about transiting translating can be everything from a, a very mature and built out infrastructure capacity Uh, like what you would see at a Long Beach port, what you'd see in Charleston, Savannah, Houston, or even in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, And it can always swing to the other side of the spectrum, which could be a team's track, which is, you know, effectively a track with a crane and a truck that's unloading product out of a car, you know, and and almost kind of a a makeshift, um, uh, temporary sort of type of transit situation. So very broad spectrum as far as the different types of transit that exist. Um, but when thinking about that, uh, so that's aspect number one, is, 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 is really helping uh, shippers identify where they can find transiting. Aspect number two is what type of services or, or, or functionality features do the, the transiting facility provide? Who are they served by? Uh, who are the local carriers? Uh, what hours are they served? What type of security features do they have? You know, there's a lot of detail that goes into a shipper's decision as to what type of transit facility to choose. And, and why is that important? The reason why that's important, because the, one of the, the, the largest blind spots within the supply chain is at origin and at destination of loading and loading. So number one, that's a huge blind spot. So there's not a lot of visibility once you get to the origin destination. And number two, when you think about exposure of the product, uh, you know, particularly underlying commodity product and merchandise or carload business, you know, when that product is being loaded or unloaded, that's when there's the most potential liability or risk for there to have be something that, that goes wrong with the product. Right. So that is the second component of it is who do you know uh, as far as transit facilities, what do they do? And then, you know, how qualified are they? What's their safety record? You know, what are all the different parameters that go into making a decision? And that's a really, really important decision for a trans uh, for a shipper to make, because that's where the exposure is for the product when they're loading and unloading the product is right at the origin and destination, not along the journey when it's in a rail car or in a container. It's really at origin and destination. Mm hmm.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I I, I guess um, sort of related to that, I mean, the, tr- the transloading to, to a large extent is, re- is related to the, the sort of potential that everyone wants is sort of taking trucks off the road, moving those to the railroad. That's good for the environment. It's good for highway safety, et cetera. Um, good for fuel usage. Um, so, sort of how do you see shippers sort of managing that and converting from from truckload into in, into rail? Um, sort of, you know, where has there been growth and, and, and where is sort of maybe the service just not... Um, you know, strong enough to do that. Yeah. So, uh, right
1: now I'd say about a third of the shippers that use our platform, uh, have never moved freight by rail. Uh, and, and right now there's a few major tailwinds that, 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 that the railroad industry has. Number one is sustainability. Uh, shippers want to, uh, effectively figure out how they can create a more sustainable footprint, a carbon footprint. Um, so when thinking about, um, moving, converting those truck lanes to rail lanes, uh, shippers are really trying to understand exactly how do they do that? Rail is a, is is a complicated product sometimes for shippers to manage, right? So you know, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot more decisions that go into you know, uh, effectively incorporating a, a rail program into your transportation supply chain uh, strategy. And when shippers are thinking about transiting in particular, you know, they're thinking about you know, how do I get a rail rate? Uh, do I need rail cars? Uh, do I am I going to manage this my service myself? Or am I going to outsource this service myself? Um, and then when thinking about the the actual sort of management and the visibility itself. You know, a lot of shippers don't realize that the visibility that is available, you know, through trucking is not as readily available uh, on rail. And that's one of the problems that we're trying to solve here at ComTrix, is how do we provide more visibility? So, you know, step one for us was creating the marketplace so that we can provide that connectivity uh, and that sort of visibility into where the locations are and what the locations do. Uh, And sort of step two, and, and this is what we're working on now, is how do you provide that visibility and how do you provide the physical logistics support and services For the shippers, because at the end of the day, when you think about the generational shift that's happening, you know, you're never going to see a 15 to 20 year fleet manager again, right? So when you're thinking shippers and how they're managing their their logistics, uh, historically, shippers have always sort of insourced rail and they've outsourced their their, their ocean freight, they've outsourced their trucking, uh, even to some extent they've outsourced their barging, but rail has historically been insourced. So now that you have this generational shift where you have a, a lot less people who have the experience. Now shippers are, are trying to figure out: Do I keep this 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 program in source or do I outsource it? And if they outsource it, you're talking about on the carload side, not on the container side of the business. You're talking about ten thousand plus stick codes that move by rail. So you know there's a lot more variables that go into the in, 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 into the process. And if you're a logistics manager, if you're sitting in a seat where your responsibility is to ensure that the underlying product that you're moving or that you're selling is going to make sure that it doesn't get disrupted, you know, before you pull the trigger and saying we're going to move. You know a third a, a quarter of our capacity from truck over to rail you, you you better understand exactly what that means uh not only to the rates because the rates obviously that's that's an important component of it but also just the, the manages the, the maintenance of it the exception uh, uh management that will happen and the disruptions that will happen along the way there are blind spots that are that are out there and and what we're trying to do is provide that visibility so that shippers you know, don't have to worry about it. They can have a, a co-pilot that's there with them, you know, vi- through a visibility platform with contracts through a marketplace, and then through, you know, physical logistics, exception manager, which we've been building out over the past year and a half.
0: Uh-huh. So, so you mentioned the, the, at the origin and destination, there's there's blind spots where the shipper doesn't know how long it's gonna take to get it, get it loaded on the train and get it unloaded from the train, it's gonna be stuck in a yard, et cetera. Are there any other sort of blind spots that sort of regularly arise? Yeah, the the, the
1: the blind spots are, are typically not along the journey, right? So the, the you know, there are EDIs that they can take care of what's happening along that that that, that journey from origin and destination. You know, re- really, it's sort of uh, you know on dock and off dock. Really, it's, it's within you get the, the the so it's once you get to origin and destination, and then also within the fence. So so within that yard, uh, th- that's another major blind spot. You know, what 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 is happening with that product once it's in the yard? You know, so if you're talking about a commodity, a bulk commodity that's stored outdoors. You know, where is it? Where is it unloaded? When is it unloading? If you're talking about a product that's moving, you know, in and out of uh, indoor storage, you know, you really want to understand, you know, at some point, uh, uh, you know, if you're a shipper, you want to have that real time visibility into, you know, what is it, where and when and what is happening to my product within the fence. So it's one thing to be able to have uh, a visibility and origin destination once it gets there. But it's another thing to have visibility within the fence um, and within the yard. Because if you're a product manager and you are responsible for making sure that your product gets to your customer quickly, if there's a disruption that's within the fence, within the yard, the first thing you want to do is you want to be able to know that so that you can get boots in the ground to figure that out. And most importantly, even if you couldn't do anything, you know, information is key and you want to be able to have that information so that you can go to your customer and let the customer know that, hey, that ETA that we initially had, that's going to be postponed because at the end of the day, I think the, the fleet managers and, and the logistics people, the responsibility, as much as, you know, you have in your control, there's a lot that's out of your control. But what is in your control is data and information and being able to have that real time information and be able to pass it along to your your downstream customer is probably paramount. So that's paramount number one. And paramount number two is being able to control costs. You know, the last thing of a finance department is what they want is a surprise accessorials or demerge fees and, you know, detention, demurrage accessorial fees. Those are fees that can get out of hand very, very quickly if you don't have ways to be able to vis- visibly monitor it, and you have ways to be able to to, to, to intervene and, and manage those the, those disruptions.
0: Yeah, there's one big CPG company we we interact with all the time, and that was their big um, issue with the with the rail was 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 the the merge um, fees. So um, yeah, definitely uh, seems like you're you know, sort of addressing the issues that people care about um, there. Um, we're out of time, but, you know, where can people uh, reach out to you, Martin, and uh, learn about Comtrex? Absolutely. If they go to Comtrex.com, that's
1: C-O-M-M-T-R-E-X.com, uh, you can follow, all follow us on LinkedIn. And then we also have a, uh, a weekly newsletter uh, that goes out to, to shippers and to the industry that also provides information and data analytics uh, for what we're seeing within our platform.
0: Yeah, there's a wealth of information on that website. Um, I would encourage people to, to read it regularly, um, post good stuff from Tony Hatch, good stuff from, from yourselves. Um, so uh, be sure to do that. Uh, so thanks very much. I hope everyone has a great day.